Okay, we'll get started. Before we actually get into the books, I've looked through your schedule, through your schedule here for the rest of the year, and I just kind of wanted to tell you, for those interested, uh, if any of you uh, in all of your free time have a chance to read, you can see here kind of what we're going to do for the rest of the year. Now, so today is First and Second Corinthians. Um, I am at a conference next week, unfortunately, so we won't meet next week, but in two weeks we'll go over Galatians. And then, of course, test week and spring break, so that takes us through March. And then April 2, we'll do Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And uh, just in looking through it, we had to make some cuts somewhere. And so we will not do... Uh, two years ago, I did uh, Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus in one Bible study. So you can, you can listen to it on the web if you're interested, but we won't do it uh, this year. Or Hebrews, which again, there's a recording of that from two years ago. I think what we'll do is next year, when I go through the Old Testament, we'll, we'll sprinkle in those two uh, Bible studies. Uh, so for those of you that are first years, we'll, we'll go through those probably next year. But anyway, on April 9, we'll do First and Second Peter, then James and Jude, First, Second, and Third John. And then we'll have um, two weeks here on the book of Revelation. Now, something could come up that I don't know of, and so we might have to uh, cut one of these. I'm not sure, but it, at least it looks to me in looking at your schedule that, um, that you should be available, at least most of you, during those dates. All right, so today, First and Second Corinthians, and let's pray as we begin. Father, I pray just now that uh, for each one of us with uh, so much going on in our lives that this would be a time when we can uh, open our hearts and minds to you. Please come close to each one of us here. Help us to identify with the situation in the church of Corinth, the rebellion, how Paul dealt with the rebellion, and perhaps that gives us some insight into how you've dealt with rebellion in human history. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, context is everything as we try to understand the Bible. And context is very important here for the book of Corinthians. Uh, this was um, the city of Corinth. Um, I wish I had a map here just to show you that it was on a major trade route and uh, that kind of separates the, the northern from the southern uh, tip of Greece. And so there were um, just a lot of uh, different cultures that came into this city. Um, Paganism was really rampant in uh, Corinth, and the converts here that Paul won in Corinthians were not Jews for the most part, but pagans who were coming out of um, idolatry. Uh, there is even a phrase here called to Corinthianize, okay, referring to the uh, sensuality, uh, sexuality that was well known here in the city of Corinth. And the historian Barnes would call Corinth the Paris of antiquity, and we might choose a different city uh, today. Um, to, or cities to maybe uh, reference. But just some of the gods here that were popular in the city of Corinth. Of course, if you have a shipping uh, industry, uh, god of the sea, Poseidon, was a very powerful god in this time. And uh, Aphrodite, here the uh, goddess of uh, sexuality. And this had more to do with the lustful, sexual um, side of things as opposed to other aspects of love. Uh, the story here in Greek mythology is kind of um, interesting. Um, the Greek god uh, Uranus, which means uh, father sky, uh, the story is told that uh, his son uh, castrated him and his genitals fell into the sea. And out of the sea foam, and the Greek for sea foam is uh, Aphros, comes Aphrodite. 
And so this is the goddess of uh, sexuality. And as we'll discuss here, if the temple of uh, Apollo during this time, uh, at least the legend is that there were uh, at any one time up to a thousand temple prostitutes here in the temple of Apollo. So your worship experience was to go to church and you would have some sort of a relationship with the temple prostitute. And so we imagine here Paul trying to convert uh, some of these people into Christianity that some uh, unique issues came up. Okay, so as we read Corinthians and uh, we, we are offended perhaps by some of Paul's advice, I think it's helpful to see, boy, this was in a unique setting. So when Paul would say, now, concerning what you wrote about food offered to idols... And of course, food was offered to the idols, generally meat. Okay, so we talked about this when we went through Daniel, that um, when Paul was asked about this, Paul would say, you know what, uh, those idols don't exist. There is no God behind those idols. So you can eat whatever you want in the meat market. That is for your conscience. Don't worry about it. Those gods aren't real. Nothing happened to the food because it was offered to idols. Uh, but then, of course, he would go on and say, now if it would bother someone else, if it would bother their conscience, if you ate the meat that was offered to the idols, then don't do it. And uh, really good advice. I mean, Paul would say, I'm willing to limit my freedom. I know there's nothing wrong with eating that food, but I will limit my freedom so as not to offend other people. And we could now go into a long discussion about uh, perhaps ways that even we might limit our freedom because it may be offensive. We don't see anything wrong with it, but it might offend uh, uh, other people. And Paul was willing to do that. Okay, so just to set the setting, I mean, these are just uh, selected passages that reveal the uh, rebellion here in the church of Corinth. And so Paul would say, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal to all of you, my friends, to agree in what you say so that there will be no divisions among you. And there were lots of divisions among them. Be completely united with only one thought and one purpose. For some people from Chloe's family have told me quite plainly, my friends, that there are quarrels among you. Let me put it this way. Each one of you says something different. One says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. And another, I follow Christ. Christ has been divided into groups. Was it Paul who died on the cross for you? Were you baptized as Paul's disciples? And he goes on in the third chapter. But for right now, friends, I'm completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other and with God. You're acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing much more than nursing at the breast. Well then, I'll nurse you, since you don't seem capable of anything more. As long as you grab for what makes you feel good or makes you look important, are you really much different than a babe at the breast, content only with every, when everything's going your way? When one of you says, I'm on Paul's side, and another says, I'm for Apollos, Aren't you being totally infantile? Okay, next chapter. I know there are some among you who are so full of themselves they never listen to anyone, let alone me. They don't think I'll ever show up in person, but I'll be there sooner than you think, God willing, and then we'll see if they're full of anything but hot air. God's way is not a matter of mere talk. It's an empowered life. So how should I prepare to come to you? As a severe disciplinarian who makes you toe the mark? or as a good friend and counselor who wants to share heart-to-heart -heart with you. You decide. And it's interesting here, as we think about the way God has revealed himself uh, so many times in the Old Testament. Uh, why did he come to Mount Sinai and shake the mountain and the people were trembling? Why not come in a, a gentle form? Well, you read around it, read Leviticus 16 and some of these chapters that describe the rules that God had to give the people at Mount Sinai 
which included uh, don't sleep with your mother, don't sleep with animals, all kinds of things that we're shocked at. Okay, God had to come as a severe disciplinarian. He had to come to restore some credibility to Moses, the leader. Okay, and so he came in this way, I think, because he had to restore respect and reverence, and you have to start there, square one, if anything good is going to happen. So as Paul goes on, I also received a report of scandalous sex within your church family, a kind that wouldn't be tolerated even outside the church. One of your men is sleeping with his stepmother, and you're so above it all that it doesn't even phase you. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Shouldn't it bring you to your knees in tears? Shouldn't this person and his conduct be confronted and dealt with? Okay, so these are the problems here in this church that is trying to come out of um, idolatry. And now, a personal but most urgent matter. I write in the gentle but firm spirit of Christ. I hear that I'm being painted as cringy and wishy-washy when I'm with you, but harsh and demanding when at a safe distance writing letters. Please don't force me to take a hard line when I'm present with you. Don't think that I'll hesitate a single minute to stand up to those who say I'm unprincipled and opportunist. Then they'll have to eat their words. And what's this talk about me bullying you with my letters? Quotes, his letters are brawny and potent, but in person he's a weakling and mumbles when he talks, unquotes. Such people won't survive scrutiny. What we write when away, we do when present. We're the exact same people, absent or present, in letter or in person. Again, they attacked Paul's speech. They said, uh, yeah, he writes real big letters and everything, but when he's actually here, uh, kind of a weakling. So then, my dear friends, keep away from the worship of idols. And if he's having to tell them, keep away from the worship of idols, uh, it's kind of like Joshua, his last speech before he died, when he said, choose now who you will serve, okay? And get rid of all the idols. So again, this was, uh, this was a problem. They hadn't fully given up on their idols. And then he would say, you know that while you were still heathen, you were led astray in many ways to the worship of lifeless idols. Now, the question that we'll kind of pursue is, what is the, uh, the Christ-like way to try to evangelize a group like this? How do you uh, bring people like this into the truth as revealed by Christ? And uh, I admire the way that Paul dealt uh, with this situation here. Regarding this next item, I'm not at all pleased. I am getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out your worst side instead of your best. First, I get this report on your divisiveness, competing with and criticizing each other. I'm reluctant to believe it, but there it is. The best that can be said for it is that the testing process will bring truth into the open and confirm it. And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out and go hungry. Others have to be carried out too drunk to walk. And uh, imagine going to church and you're uh, participating in the, maybe the communion service and people are walking out drunk. Okay, it'd be uh, quite uh, different than maybe than any experience we've had um, here. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. And if we put the, the two books of Corinthians together, uh, they probably are more than two letters. There's this back and forth dialogue, and some people have tried to break it up maybe into four letters that went back and forth where Paul uh, really came down hard on them. 
And um, it, it's interesting to try to put these two books together. Now, what about those people who are baptized for the dead? Again, coming out of idolatry. What do they hope to accomplish? If it is true, as some claim, that the dead are not raised to life, why are those people being baptized for the dead? Do not be fooled. Bad companions ruin good character. Come back to your right senses and stop your sinful ways. I declare to your shame that some of you do not know God. So he wrote this letter, and Titus delivered the letter. And we'll leave out this section, but Paul was very nervous. He was afraid he came down too hard on them in his letter, and he couldn't wait to get a response. Uh, but the response came back from the church in Corinth that, yeah, they responded favorably to Paul's criticism. Because Paul would say, for even if that letter of mine made you sad, I'm not sorry I wrote it. I could have been sorry when I saw that it made you sad for a while, but now I am happy. Not because I made you sad, but because your sadness made you change your ways. It worked. That sadness was used by God, and so we caused you no harm. For the sadness that is used by God brings a change of heart that leads to salvation, and there is no regret in that. So they were troubled by Paul's letter, but it worked to reform and so his, his hard words uh, achieved the purpose. But now let's, let's deal with uh, a couple specific issues in the church of Corinth. One of them is speaking in tongues. And Paul would say, Now, concerning what you wrote about the gifts from the Holy Spirit, I want you to know the truth about them, my friends. You know that while you were still heathen, you were led astray in many ways to the worship of lifeless idols. Now, let me tell you a better way. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different type, types of tongues. And the NIV adds a footnote, other languages, uh, the good news, which I often quote from, says strange tongues, the strange is added. Okay, so um, what is this referring to? Of course, we know at Pentecost, the speaking in tongues uh, was for the purpose of clarification of the message, right? It was so that everyone could understand. Okay, well, Paul's going to go on here to clarify. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, he would go on, he's clear, he's set up here kind of a, uh, from one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, now he's going to kind of refine this. So he would say, set your hearts then on the more important gifts. Best of all, however, is the following way. Best of all is this way. And then, of course, we get into the familiar words in 1 Corinthians 13. I may be able to speak the language of human beings and even of angels, but if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. So the passage that's read at every wedding here is kind of coming out of the context of Paul discussing this uh, speaking in tongues. And so what he's going to do is again and again and again is say, well, best of all is this way. Best of all is this way. And if you don't have love, uh, nothing matters. We'll come back and read uh, 1 Corinthians. But listen to Paul's other advice. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts but especially the gift of speaking what God has revealed, okay? because things are understood. We want people to understand what you say. And he would say, when a person speaks in another language, he doesn't speak to people, but to God. No one understands him. So this was not the speaking in tongues that was done at Pentecost. 
His spirit is speaking mysteries. But when a person speaks what God has revealed, he speaks to people to help them grow, to encourage them and to comfort them. That's the better way. When a person speaks in another language, he helps himself grow. But when a person speaks what God has revealed, he helps the church grow. I wish that all of you could speak in other languages, uh, but especially that you could speak what God has revealed. Again, that's the better way. The person who speaks what God has revealed is more important than the person who speaks in other languages or speaks in tongues. This is true unless he can interpret what he says to help the church grow. So if you're going to speak in tongues, better understand what you're saying and be able to interpret it for other people. Brothers and sisters, it wouldn't do you any good if I came to you speaking in other languages. wouldn't do you any good unless I explained revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or doctrine to you. In the same way, since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in them so that you help the church grow. So the person who speaks in another language should pray for an interpretation of what he says. If I pray in another language, my spirit prays, but my mind is not productive. So what does this mean? It means that I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my mind. I will sing psalms with my spirit and I will sing songs with my mind. And I'm always uncomfortable if in a worship experience, it seems like the mind is checked out and it's just purely uh, emotion. Okay, and Paul would say in the worship experience, hey, I will have my mind actively engaged in that process. Otherwise, if you praise God only with your spirit, how can outsiders say amen to your prayer of thanksgiving? They don't know what you're saying. Your prayer of thanksgiving may be very good, but it doesn't help other people grow. I thank God that I speak in other languages more than any of you. Paul probably spoke many languages, at least Hebrew, Greek, perhaps Aramaic. But yet, in order to teach others in church, notice, I would rather say five words that could be understood than 10,000 words in another language. Again, he keeps making this contrast. If then the whole church meets together and everyone starts speaking in strange tongues, and if some ordinary people or unbelievers come in, won't they say that you are all crazy? But if everyone is proclaiming God's message, the better way, when some unbelievers or ordinary people come in, they will be convinced of their sin by what they hear. They will be judged by all they hear. Their secret thoughts will be brought out into the open and they will bow down and worship God, confessing, truly God is here among you. Okay, they need to hear a message of truth that will convict them, not uh, something that they can't understand. So, if someone is going to speak in strange tongues, two or three at the most should speak, one after the other, and someone else must explain what is being said. So it's only allowed in this this setting and someone has to understand it. But if no one is there who can explain, then the one who speaks in strange tongues must be quiet. Okay, notice how many limitations here Paul is gradually putting on the whole process here. He must be quiet and speak only to himself and to God. The gift of proclaiming God's message should be under the speaker's control because God does not want us to be in disorder, but in harmony and peace. So then, my friends, set your heart on proclaiming God's message, but do not forget, forbid the speaking in strange tongues. Don't forbid it. But notice, everything must be done in a proper and orderly manner. So you get the impression here that there was a chaotic experience going on in the worship um, activities here in the Church of Corinth. And Paul is saying, do it this way if you're going to do it. It has to be two or three, and don't allow it unless someone understands and can also interpret. Everything must be done in an orderly way. 
And, um, of course, the definition, which we've talked about, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and the last one is self-control. Okay, we don't uh, lose all control when we're filled with the Spirit. That is, uh, yes, a very joyful experience, not to take that away, but um, it's not something where the, the mind is checked out of the whole uh, experience. And, of course, the one, the best example of someone filled with the Spirit is Jesus who was described this way in Isaiah, here is my servant whom I strengthen, the one I've chosen, whom I've pleased, I have filled him with my spirit. Okay, he's our example of what it uh, would it look like to be ultimately filled with the spirit. And of course, uh, the words, the actions of Jesus are anything but um, an out of control um, situation. Okay, so um, that's what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. Now, some of you may have heard this story. Alden Thompson um, told this. I thought it was a good illustration. We try to identify with reaching people who are perhaps see things very differently than we do. He told the story of some missionaries who went off to a place in Africa. And uh, in this culture, the men beat their wives. And they beat their wives to show them that they loved them. Okay, that's, that's the mindset. And so the missionaries went there and said, well, this is a horrible thing. And they actually were able to convince many of the men that it was wrong for them to beat their wives. Okay, you'd think that's a good thing. I think that is a good thing, of course. But uh, the interesting thing that happened is that uh, uh, many of the women complained. How come our husbands don't love us anymore? Um, again, we have a very hard time identifying with dramatically different cultures and times. But... Um, you know, uh, God has to reach people at all different places. And so that's why God has allowed some things. Uh, for example, what do you think about this? The, what is, how does God feel about polygamy? And we go back to Exodus. And God would give this command. If a man takes a second wife, well, why not start out by saying, I forbid polygamy? No, God would say, if a man takes a second wife he must continue to give his first wife the same amount of food and clothing and the same rights that she had before. So this practice was so entrenched during this time that God could not bring them right up to the ideal. It would be too much for them. He had to meet them at a step better than where they were. All right? So at least if you're going to take another one, and we just, I mean, we consider the great men in the Old Testament, like Abraham and David, who had many wives, Solomon, all right? And uh, so God is trying to lead them in the right direction. Yes? Okay, so the question was, uh, how do we apply this to the world today? You know, I don't, it's interesting, just this week, I don't know if some of you heard about the boy in India who uh, grew a tooth out of the upper part of his gum, which is thought to be a, a very, uh, like a curse. And what he had to do was actually to be uh, in a marriage ceremony with an animal which would prevent the demons from, from attacking him. Um, so, or I'm sorry, the uh, lions or uh, tigers from attacking him. So uh, that's an interesting, you know, how would you, how would you break through if you're going there as a missionary? Uh, another one that came to mind, I know I've told this before, but in Iraq several years ago, a grocer had the audacity to put tomatoes next to celery sticks in the grocery store. And uh, he was killed. The grocery store was burned down. I think his family was killed as well because, of course, tomatoes next to celery sticks could be interpreted as an erect male. Um, now, we imagine God trying to reach 
what would you do? Yes, there is an ideal. There is an ideal. Very clearly, there's an ideal. But if you are the president or the governor of this town and you want to reach people who that is their standard of justice, that's really bad, putting tomatoes next to celery sticks, and you think that it's really bad to drive drunk, what would you do as governor? Uh, in the mind of the people, standard of justice is death for tomatoes next to celery sticks. And if you want to make a rule that would suggest that driving drunk is really bad, well, if you have a $300 penalty, then in the minds of the people, celery sticks and tomatoes is up here, driving drunk is way down here. Um, so I don't know, but I, I would agree, yes, there is an ideal. We need to lead people to the ideal as quickly as possible. And I think the quickest way there to the ideal is to say, Jesus is God in human form. You want to see the ideal? Let's talk about the life of Jesus. Let's, let's continually hone on that. That is what God is like. And I think everything else will kind of fall into place if you could at least get people to grasp that one essential truth. But that's a hard question. So um, coming back here to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, you know, this is read so many times that I think we kind of... Um, we almost, it doesn't have the same impact that it should. So I put this up in an entirely different translation here. This is the Phillips Bible, so it will be expressed a little differently. Um, but there's just no more beautiful passage here in the writings of Paul. So if I speak with the eloquence of men and of angels, but have no love, I become no more than blaring brass or crashing cymbal. If I have the gift of foretelling the future and hold in my mind not only all human knowledge, but the very secrets of God... And if I also have that absolute faith which can move mountains but have no love, I amount to nothing at all. Now, I just have to think, if you had the faith to move mountains, would it be possible not to have love? I mean, I think those two would, would go in parallel, but uh, love is the highest ideal. And again, people are kicked out of the church for all kinds of reasons, but generally not because, well, they just weren't a loving person. If I dispossess of all that I possess, yes, even if I give my own body to be burned, but have no love, I achieve precisely nothing. This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it is glad with all good men when truth prevails. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. For if there are prophecies, they will be fulfilled and done with. If there are tongues, the need for them will disappear if there is knowledge, it will be swallowed up in truth. For all our knowledge is always incomplete, and our prophecy is always incomplete. And when the complete comes, that is the end of the incomplete. When I was a little child, I talked and felt and thought like a little child. And again, he's, I think, alluding back to the immaturity of this church. But now that I am a man, my childish speech and feeling and thought have no further significance for me. At present... We are men looking at puzzling reflections in a mirror. The time will come when we shall see reality whole and face to face. At present, all I know is a little fraction of the truth. 
but the time will come when I shall know it as fully as God now knows me. In this life, we have three great lasting qualities, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of them is love. Now, I think it's kind of interesting just as a kind of a thought experiment here that we know the famous uh, verse that God is love. God is love personified. Okay, so if we just replace all of the attributes here, love is this, love is that, uh, let's just go through and replace the word God. Does it really fit? God is patient. Yeah, I think we'd agree. I mean, uh, supremely patient. Look how long he has dealt with this rebellion. He didn't just uh, execute Lucifer and um, doesn't call down fire from heaven here uh, on individuals that um, disobeys. Extremely patient. God is kind. In Jesus, we can say, yes, God is kind. How about this one? God does not sing his own praises. Uh, Does God sing his own praises? Well, it's interesting. Did Jesus ever ask anyone to worship him? Not one time. And it's kind of interesting just to consider the uh, the Trinity here, how they interact with each other. Of course, Jesus came. He's God in human form. And what does he do? He keeps talking about, let me tell you about the Father. The Father and I are one. I'm going to reveal the character of the Father. And of course, we read on. What does the Father do? Gives Jesus a name higher than any other name. He doesn't seem to draw attention to himself. What does the Holy Spirit do? He reveals the truth about God, about Jesus, about the Father. Okay, so they are really the ideal of this uh, other-centered love, which is at the foundation of God's kingdom. God is not touchy. I like that one. God is not rude. God is not selfish, or in another translation, and of course I'm substituting God here for the word love, but God is not self-seeking. Now this is interesting because I think really at the foundation, at the core, if we want to say, just like a presidential candidate, this is how I'm going to run my kingdom under this style of government. This is it. Uh, As I've put things together, I think the the foundation of God's kingdom is other-centered love. And I think when Satan rebelled and became Lucifer, that the ultimate rebellion that occurred is self-seeking. Okay, Instead of being concerned about others, giving, love for God, love for others, uh, Satan began the process of feeding self, self instead of giving for others. And of course, if there's any doubt, um, God is not selfish, God is not self-seeking. I mean, what a condescension for God to come in human form, spend nine months in the womb, become a servant, uh, die being tortured to death. God is not self-seeking. did that for others. How about this one? God does not keep track of wrongs. God does not store up grievances. Um, Is that true of God? Does God keep track of wrongs? What about um, when we're in heaven? Will God have a memory of all the bad things that we've done? Because um, at least... It's so often the worst things that we've done and how God brought us out of that, the memory of that is uh, so frequently uh, important. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's, it's said, well, you know, our sins will be at the bottom of the ocean in poetic language. God will remember them no more. Um, but will God give up his omniscience in the hereafter? Um, we walk up to Jesus and he's got the scars in his hands and we ask him, you know, what's all that about? And well, I can't remember. Uh, no, there'll be detailed memory. And, you know, I, I, it's kind of interesting to imagine here the combination of people that will arise in the kingdom. Okay, I think uh, we can assume that David, despite all that he did, will be in the kingdom. What, what about Uriah? 
Um, from what we understand, he was a very good man, certainly very devout. Um, as David tried to you know, entice him to sleep with Bathsheba again, uh, what's going to happen when those two men meet in the kingdom? Will they, they won't remember any of it. Or will they remember? But yet the people that are there in the kingdom, I think, will be safe with the memory of uh, all of those things. All right, so I think God will remember, but the nice thing about God, of course, is we can trust him with the knowledge of all the things that we've done. He doesn't hold it against us. God never insists on having his own way, doesn't he? God doesn't force himself on others. Well, he certainly has done some forceful things in human history, but uh, God does not coercively force us on our knees to worship him. Okay, his, his kingdom is not based on any coercion or force. Again, we've said he could eliminate atheism in a minute by showing up as a bright uh, tower of fire, but he does not want to coerce. The issue is not does he exist, the issue is what he's like in character, and that can't be coerced. God never stops being patient. God knows no limits to his endurance. God takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. God is the one thing that stands when all else has fallen. Okay, so I think it's interesting to go through that. God is love personified, and I think we can use all of those descriptions um, and, and point to God. Now, a couple of other things here. It's specific to the church of Corinth. Paul would say, a man dishonors Christ if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her husband if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. And since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, then she should wear a covering. Now, shouldn't we do what the Bible says? Well, let's read on. And it's interesting that Paul would say, but if anyone wants to argue about it, all I have to say is that neither we nor the churches of God have any other custom in worship. Um, again, we do not read the Bible, I don't think we should, to make a list. There's another one. There's another one. Okay, we read the Bible ultimately to understand who God is. Is God trustworthy? Do I want to enter into a relationship with God? What's his character like? These are the kinds of questions we read as, the, as we read the Bible or we should be asking. And so I think here we have a very specific thing for this time. And uh, I just... I was reminded of something. We don't understand how cultures change, how dramatically. Now, some of you will think this is uh, just totally weird, but uh, just over 20 years ago, I was in college, and um, I was a resident assistant, and uh, the school that I went to, which is a very good school, but it was not allowed to go to movies, all right? And uh, so I wanted to see this movie about Mozart, and uh, so I had to uh, wear a disguise, hat, sunglasses, jacket, uh, because I didn't want to lose my job as a resident assistant. Okay, now that's a culture just 20 years ago, which uh, I hope to most of you sounds like, uh, well, that's kind of strange. Okay, now here we are 2,000 years ago with these people um, in Corinth. And again, if the, if the temple prostitutes, right next door you have your church, where the church experience was to meet up with a temple prostitute, well, maybe would there be some things that would want to distinguish here the women of our church versus the temple prostitutes in the church next door? So Paul would say, God does not want us to be in disorder, but in harmony and peace. As in all the churches of God's people, the women should keep quiet in the meetings. They are not allowed to speak. As the Jewish law says, they must not be in charge. 
If they want to find out about something, they should ask their husbands at home. It is a disgraceful thing for a woman to speak in a church meeting. Now, shouldn't we do what the Bible says? Um, again, this, this runs against our grain because, yes, we should do what the Bible says. But we have to see the very specific advice in a different time, a different culture, and I think we need to be able to have the freedom to say, I understand perhaps why that was said in that time, but it does not apply to me, and it does not apply to our time uh, today. Again, things were entirely different back then. It's meeting people in a very unique uh, circumstance, just like we wouldn't quote the verse in Exodus to say, well, if I take a second wife, I will uh, treat my other one uh, very well. I mean, we could take the whole Bible out of context and do just about anything we want to. And it's interesting that as Paul would go on to give his advice, that he would say, it is good for a man not to marry. So if we marry, are we not doing what the Bible says? And then Paul would say, I don't know of anything else the Lord said about marriage. Again, he's saying, I don't know what God said about this. All I can do is give my own advice. He's giving his own advice. And then he would say, I don't know of anything that the Lord said about people who have never been married. Don't know what God had to say about this, but I'll tell you what I think. And then after concluding that whole passage, he would say, that is my opinion, and I think that I too have God's spirit. Okay, Prophets sometimes get in trouble when they give their own opinion. Uh, I would trust Paul's opinion very highly, but he's labeled it here. I don't know what God had to say about this, but let me tell you, based on God as I know him in Christ, this is my opinion, and I think we can trust that opinion. Okay, and then he would say, what I mean, my friends, is this. There is not much time left, and from now on, married people should live as though they were not married. Those who weep as though they were not sad. Those who laugh as though they were not happy. Those who buy as though they did not own what they bought. Those who deal in material goods as though they were not fully occupied with them. For this world as it is now will not last much longer, 2,000 years ago. Now, uh, I think a couple things here. Jerusalem was just about to be destroyed, and Paul knew this. And so I think part of the him saying, hey, don't marry, is there's a very short time. And I wish all of you were like me. You know, Peter was married, had a family. Very hard for him to travel around and spread the good news. So I think Paul wished, had a good motive and desire to say, you know what, I wish there were more people like me just giving everything for this. It's better not to marry. Okay, but again, specific uh, to a specific circumstance in that time. And just uh, one comment here on the uh, ordination of women and... I think that um, if we were to read the words here in Corinthians and to say, well, women should not be ordained because of what Paul said, well, then we better follow, if we're going to take that position, all of the other advice. So a man, I think, shouldn't proclaim that women shouldn't be ordained, or he better not be married if uh, he were to make that statement, and uh, maybe better insist on coverings for women's head and all kinds of other things. Now, I think there may be cultures where it would not be appropriate for women to be ordained. I mean, again, go to Africa, some of those places. It would create more trouble, all right? So we have to kind of tailor things to specific time and circumstance. So we've heard God say, in human form, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. God has had to give all kinds of rules to meet people at a situation where they were far, far away from the truth. God gave the rule, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, but we have to say, in Jesus, we do not operate under the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth model. And I like this verse, which I don't think we've read here in Ezekiel, where God would say about giving all these rules, I did this 
because they had rejected my commands, broken my laws, profaned the Sabbath, and worshipped the same idols their ancestors had served. And notice, then I gave them laws that are not good and commands that do not bring life. And this becomes very clear if you are a parent. You will give your children all kinds of rules. When you tell your child, uh, get out of the cat litter box and don't play there again. Is that a rule that brings life? And no, it's necessary for, for a time. Okay, but if your child still needs that rule when they're in college, then uh, things are not going well. <laughs> so again, how do we read the Bible? The Bible is the book that reveals the character of God. That's uh, the ultimate purpose here. Now, just a, a couple more verses. If you want to read something just so meaty and good, it's in 2 Corinthians 2 uh, through chapter 4. And uh, I think the uh, significance of these words is, is really incredible. Paul would say, But thanks be to God, for in union with Christ, we are always led by God as prisoners in Christ's victory procession. What do you think about that, to be a prisoner in Christ's victory procession? And I thought about all of the prophets you know, from Abel to Jeremiah, who was stoned to death, to Isaiah, sawed in half in a hollow log, John the Baptist, uh, James, Peter, who were all killed, Paul, who was persecuted. Okay, to be led a prisoner in Christ's victory procession. It's an interesting way of describing it, where God's best friends seem to suffer the most, it would almost seem. But notice, what's the purpose in all this? God uses us to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. Now, what knowledge about Christ? Uh, Jesus came and said eternal life is to know God. And so I think ultimately we're to reveal what God is like in character, that knowledge. For we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it is a deadly stench that kills but for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. And Jesus would describe the judgment. This is what the judgment is like. And he would say the light has come into the world, but the dark has not comprehended it or rejected it. Okay, so presenting the truth as it is in Jesus, it does have a splitting effect. And some love it and come into it, and some are hardened and reject it. Okay, a few verses later, Paul would say, but the people's minds were hardened. And even to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, a veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. Veils are always bad in the Bible. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, then the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, he gives freedom. And all of us have had that veil removed so that we could be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory, the character of the Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him and reflect his glory, reflect what, his brightness? No, reflect uh, his character, reflect his love. We reflect that even more. And uh, I just like to consider, as we talked about Leviticus and the sanctuary system a long, long time ago, we describe that the purpose here is we don't want to be shielded from God by all these veils and things. No, we are encouraged. We follow the high priest in and we are to follow Christ into the most holy place. We're meant to go through those veils and to dwell in the very presence of God, symbolically how all this is represented. And I find it significant that when Christ died, 
Remember what happened? The curtain was ripped from top to bottom. And I think the meaning here, at least in part, of course it was an end to the uh, sacrificial system, but the meaning is, hey, this is the clearest revelation of God that we will ever have. When God in human form died on the cross, the veil is ripped, and that is our God. And we enter in, Paul would say, enter in with uh, boldness into the very presence of God. If he's just like Jesus, then uh, we, we are encouraged to enter in. Okay, last verse. One of my favorite in the whole New Testament. Paul would say, For if the gospel we preach is hidden, it is hidden only from those who are being lost. They do not believe because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them. Now, what does Satan try to prevent? What light is he trying to prevent us from seeing? Notice the light that comes from the good news about the glory of Christ. Hey, again, was Christ bright? No, the, ultimately the good news is about the character of Christ who revealed God's character. Notice, who is the exact likeness of God, not nose, eyes, ears, the exact likeness of God's character. For it is not ourselves that we preach. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The God who said, out of darkness the light shall shine is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts. Again, a clarification. What is that light? To bring us the knowledge of God's glory, God's character. And again, where do we see the knowledge of God's character? It is shining in the face of Christ. That is the good news. And that is the light that needs to go throughout the entire world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, um, again, more understanding here. Perhaps we can identify with some of the things, radical things, that you have had to do in human history as we see Paul struggling with the church of Corinth. But help us to come closer to the ideal. Help us to reflect that ideal of Christ to the world and all those around us. In your name we pray.